0: Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins, and we are here on the ground at Sundance and doing one of my favorite things that we do here at the festival, which is bring filmmakers together to talk amongst themselves. And, you know, yes, I'm here to shepherd along the conversation, but really, I'm a fly on the wall. And we are so lucky to have a true power hitter. Roundtable of Documentary Directors. First up, we have Alex Stapleton, an Emmy Award-winning doc filmmaker known for her thought-provoking projects that have redefined authentic American storytelling across sports, pop culture, music, social justice. She is here as part of the HBO documentary trilogy, God Save Texas, having directed one of the three episodes of the trilogy, God Save Texas, The Price of Oil, which premieres on HBO on 226. And you can stream it on Max on 227. We also have on the podcast, Jeff Symbolist, the director of Skywalkers, A Love Story, which he will tell you what it's about. You have seen his work on Apple, on podcasts, etc. He's sort of Carving the way, and you'll be surprised in the conversation about how his work influenced other people in the conversation. We also are joined by Michael John Warren, the director of Lala, the Lollapalooza story, a limited series coming out on Paramount Plus following, well, Lollapalooza. He's going to get into how he sort of accidentally became a director by way of a Jay Z documentary. And finally, we have on Tony Gerber, one of the directors of War Game, a documentary that simulates a coup for the 2024 election and is all too real. One thing to note about this interview is we had some directors with hard outs and we just kept recording. So you can sort of feel what it's like to be in the room mingling and rubbing elbows at Sundance. So as you hear, there will be some stops and goes and starts and stops with the interview. And now the roundtable of Sundance documentary directors.
1: Well,
0: welcome. Thank you so much for being here on the No Film School podcast. We have four powerful projects here that are very different in format, very different in style, very different in topics. So let's start by introducing yourself and the project that you did and tell us a little bit about the project. And we'll start with you, Michael.
2: Sure. My name is Michael John Warren, and I directed a series called Lala, the story of Lala Palooza, which basically explores the 30 plus years of what I consider the most influential cultural phenomenon since Woodstock in America, at least. And it we had a bottomless archive, essentially. And we do this great job, I believe, of basically using this, this festival to, of course, explore all this great music, but to really look at youth culture over the last 30 years. And so it's really nostalgic, but it comes all the way up until this year. And there's a lot of insane parallels between when I was a kid And at the first Lollapalooza at 17 years old in 1991, and we were pissed about corporate greed. We were pissed about what was happening with the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas. We were mad about the environment, and we were just angry. And Mm -hmm. so when I made this series, I started thinking about what's happening right now. And at all the screenings here, Gen Z kids have been running up to me after the thing saying, we feel so passionate about this movie. And it looks like you guys went through what we went through. And I keep telling them, like, yeah, please learn from what we did right and learn from what we did right, wrong. Because... You guys are
3: really up against it. And I hope you find something in here that's
2: useful.
0: Mm -hmm. How about you, Tony?
3: Yeah. So my film is called War Game. I directed it with Jesse Moss. And we gained access to a a large-scale improvisation that took place in Washington, D.C. last January 6th, involving former policymakers, elected officials, retired generals from across five presidential administrations. So... Bipartisan group, right? And they gathered with the intent of stress testing our democracy, right? So they played the parts in an unscripted improvisation of a president and his inner circle of advisors on January 6, 2025, right? In the wake of a contested, close, close election, right? That once again sparks an insurrection. And uh, accusations that the election was tampered with, right? But This time, what these role players have to deal with is members of the far right have infiltrated uh, active duty military, right? So when you want to call out the National Guard to, to keep the peace or to protect, you know, a certification of the vote, if some of those folks do not respect the, the sitting president, right, and feel that he's, in fact, the coup plotter, right? We have a big problem. So this exercise came about because a veterans organization called Vet Voice, that's an advocacy organization, had two retired generals in their, in their network, uh, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that we are woefully ill-prepared for the next contested election, mm-hmm. right? And we need, to, we need to war game it. So war gaming is about imagining the unimaginable, right? To be prepared. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so that is what happened. Jesse and I gained access. It took place last January 6th. So everyone was feeling the energy of, of the, the past insurrection of. And it was extraordinary. We had no idea what was going to happen. These are not actors, right? There were no scripts. There were no instructions on say this or say that, but they knew the limits of their department of government. Mm -hmm. They knew what their roles were in that sense, because they've done these played these parts in real life, right? And so they had six hours to save democracy.
0: It is such a, it's like a thrilling edge of your seat experience watching this unfold and it was so powerful.
3: Yes, it was for us too, because we didn't know if it was going to be a shit show. Can we curse on air?
0: Yes, oh, we welcome it. We support it. It's sort of part of,
3: yeah. part I mean, of the you no know, film
0: school experience.
3: We had no way to know if this was gonna to be totally in the weeds. Yeah. You know, sort of inside inside baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you know, principal photography was one day, mm-hmm. which your 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 listeners will find very interesting. So six cameras. It was a massive day. It was like the Super Bowl. It was really in many ways like live television, you know. Six camera operators, all on comms. Wow. you know, calling the shots, like live television. And, you know, the, we, we created a fake news network mm-hmm. so that we could, you know, sort of provoke the president and his advisors and and sort of drop in, you know, the seeds of what's happening outside the Capitol, mm-hmm. right? And, and then what starts to happen across the, across the nation, yeah. right? As a kind of provocation. And I, sh- I should mention we had what's called the red cell, right? Which is, that's basically the insurgency. Mm-hmm. So we had real-time role players also playing the part of the Proud Boys and, you know, um, the Three Percenters. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. Congratulations. Thank
3: you.
1: I don't know how to follow uh, <laughs> on that. You know. My name is Alex Stapleton. Uh, I directed one installment of the trilogy, God Save Texas. It's called God Save Texas. My film is called The Price of Oil. Mm-hmm. And the trilogy is based on a book of the same name, God Save Texas, written by Lawrence Wright, a journalist who was, who was, wanted to explain Texas to the rest of America. And his book kind of goes into politics, culture of, of the state, how crazy it is, but how it all kind of makes sense. But it's also semi-autobiographical. He's from Dallas. And so when we started the project, the hunt was to find three Texas-based filmmakers or Texans that are also filmmakers. I was in exile at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the, one of the episodes directed by Rank Linklater so he is from Huntsville. His his episode is about or his film is about growing up in a town where prison is the main industry. There was another director, Ileana Sosa, who's from El Paso, who talks about the relationship between Juarez and El Paso and, you know, her parents, her being first generation Texan. And mine, I'm from Houston. And I'm actually seventh generation Texan, seventh generation Galveston, Houston. And my family, you know, as a as a black woman, my my lineage is is my ancestors were enslaved. were brought there enslaved to Galveston, and we stayed there and flourished over the years. You know, we 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 my ancestors came out of that situation and really worked very hard and tirelessly to build a life for themselves in that state. Kind of, and you know, at the same time, there's a discovery. Spindletop happens, and there's just, just the discovery of oil. and And the film kind of talks about what's the black story of Texas? And what the hell does it, how does, how do black people fit into the story of oil and gas? Mm. Um, And uh, it was a journey to say the least. Um, uh, I learned a lot about my family. I learned, I've never turned the camera on myself ever. Mm. I hate it. And I've been making docs for 20 years. And so it was very uncomfortable to be on camera, A, and to kind of realize that my my family has a story to tell because I'm always trying to find stories with other people and I love that game I love that challenge and to realize that you know I have a very rich history and 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 to to really lean into that was was a very unique 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 thing in making this this project and I really wanted to to myth bust texas you know and I think it it's, it's very topical you know today we have a governor who's banning books who is actively erasing culture in in the state. And, and I think there's a reason why when most people think about Texas, mm-hmm. they don't think about Black people, even though we have the highest population of Black people concentrated in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my grandfather was a cowboy. I wanted to, to put that on screen. I wanted my cousins who rope and rodeo, like, professionally, like, to be on screen so that I could start to... to to mess and fuck with the images of what comes out of that state. Yeah. And, and then I, I guess the last part of it is, is the environmental impact of oil and gas. My my family, my great-grandfather was a part of building the first master planned community for, for Black people in America. And it's on the east side of Houston, Texas. The neighborhood is called Pleasantville. And <laughs> oh my it was gosh. The, yes, how ironic. And the it was pleasant and it was great. It was a real pleasantville, what you would think of it back in the day in the forties. And, but as oil and gas grew, they put, and there's no zoning in Houston, there's no rules. Mm -hmm. So industry put a lot, they dumped, they put, you know, their, their oil, their tanks where they have all kinds of chemicals to, to, to break down oil and gas for all the products that we use. They put all of that toxic stuff in black and brown neighborhoods on the east side of Houston. And so what once was a crown jewel, you know, for my family is now, you know, quite literally there's, there's, there's tankers next to homes because there's no zoning. And the, the film was me going back home and really starting to understand that the elders in my family were really sick. My cousins all have asthma and just understanding, wow, like we are being destroyed. And you, you, you double that with climate change and the floods that happened there. And while I was shooting, it was also during the pandemic. I was shooting during the freeze that I don't oh, know if everyone oh remembers when the whole state lost power. Yeah. And as I was filming, I lost three family members. I lost two family members to COVID and my uncle, I lost him in the freeze. Wow. And so it was, you know, and they and I had just been shooting with them. So it became a mission to, it became more than a film mm-hmm. in a way to to complete the the project and to hopefully share my story and to hopefully wake people up to pay attention to what is happening in the state of Texas, because how goes Texas, I believe is how goes America and the blueprint of how the rest of this country will, will go. So much of that is being worked out Mm -hmm. in a state like Texas. So I hope that, you know, it makes, it makes, it has a presence this year, especially. Mm
0: -hmm. And the trilogy is coming out on HBO. Yes.
1: It airs on HBO February 27th. So yeah.
0: Uh, there's such urgency to this, these these stories, too. And that, I think that's such a fascinating through line, specifically concentrating it all here at the festival. How about you, Jeff?
4: Well, first of all, those are fascinating projects, guys. I've yet to turn the camera on myself. 20 years of doing this, I'm resisting. So one day it'll happen, but it's very courageous. I can't wait to watch that. I've also yet to shoot an entire film in a day. Uh, <laughs> That I look forward to. Uh, By contrast, my film was shot over seven years um, and was uh, a classic labor of love, harebrained idea with a ton of variables and liability and risk. So I self-financed the first three years following a Russian couple who trespasses onto the roofs of the world's highest buildings. And they do acrobatic poses and they shoot it with incredible camera work. And I was a uh, amateur, what they call roof topper, when I was in my teens and my twenties, where I was reading a lot of theory about how you know the culture bubbles or prescribes your every behavior, and that to really find yourself and define who you want to be in the world on your own terms, you need to find the forgotten nooks and crannies, the tunnels under the city, the rooftops above it, because um, really only in that space, that's autonomous, the autonomous zone, you can you can make up your own mind and. and and push through your own fears. And that was incredibly informative for me. When I found out that there were people doing this crazy thing all over the world, this is in the late 90s, I took off my proverbial balaclava and uh, put on my journalist hat and started tracking the rise of this phenomena, um, which really did blow up, particularly as social media blew up. And I was looking for stories that you know resonated as deeply as the experience I had had. And I found a woman, the first female rooftopper, this Russian woman named Angela Nikolay. when she was first coming on the scene. And she was doing acrobatics and gymnastics where the men were just hanging off, you know, they were doing shock value daredevil stuff. And she was elegant and poetic and turning it into high art. I reached out to her. She tells me she grew up in a traveling circus. She was inspired by her parents who were trapeze uh, artists. So I was like, wow. And then she introduces me to the best rooftopper in Russia, this guy, Ivanya Birkis. And it's unclear at the time whether they're rivals or whether there's like the seeds of a courtship. And I'm like, can we possibly tell a love story on top of the world here? Is that what's happening? And sure enough, went out and shot a sizzle, probably spent a total of $10,000 over, you know, four years on it, kept it real low budget. And over the course of that time, we watched a romance flourish and started to create this lens of, using extreme climbing as a metaphor for romantic trust. And um, The Sizzle uh, was brought to XYZ Films and Library and they got on board and financed it. We decided to be independent given the liability issues, which I can speak more about, but the safety was a top concern. And, you know, seven years later, the story took unbelievable twists and turns, climaxing in this insane real life ninja mission that we leaned into the heist and thriller elements It plays very genre but stuck true to this North Star the whole time that this was not a film about the fear of falling from heights. We, we always reminded ourselves it's a film about the fear of falling in love.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> well, you you all mentioned you know, you've been doing this for 20 years as filmmakers. Let's go back to the beginning and your entry point into becoming a filmmaker in the doc space. And we'll, this time we'll go around in this direction.
4: Question is how did we? How How'd did you get start? your start? Um, I, I was into other things. I, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking I would be a production guy. And um, docs felt like the opportunity. I was into Latin American studies, political science. I was very into economic development, and it felt like documentaries was a way to insert myself, inject myself right into the heart of certain communities around the world that would otherwise take me a long time to gain access to and I loved listening. My mom's a therapist. I'm a question asker. I don't ever stop asking questions. My friends say, did you get jeffed? Which means, did you get cornered at the party and (laughs) asked a million questions? He learns everything about you and you learn nothing about him. So it felt like a natural progression from my other interests. Um, My first real work in the doc space was teaching editing actually at college when um, I was in a theory program where nobody really knew how to use the software or the cameras. And I was like, I could do that. And the, the school hired me uh, mm-hmm. to teach. And then I went and taught at the New York Film Academy and started getting hired by some of my students who were independently wealthy to edit their films and eventually earned their trust. And they started hiring me to direct. My first feature directorial uh, project was in Brazil. Was called Favela Rising. That was in the early 2000s, and it tells the story of a cultural movement in the favelas where we lived and embedded in this very dangerous area, and I did everything. Wore all the hats, felt like uh, I understood each part of the process, and have been fortunate enough to have great opportunities ever since.
1: I think that this is really interesting that we're both sitting together, because when I was first starting out, Jeff, I was working out of the production company that financed, or that, that, that kind of did the finishing funds for, or with Ravi for Favela oh, Rising. Track. Yeah, Sidetrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Jeff, I was like, I wanted to work in scripted, like probably a lot of people, but I, and I had moved to New York from Texas and I was just trying to find my way because I did not go to, to film school. I didn't even we finish. Like <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even finish college. I went to one year at Pace University and I was like, get me the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. This got me to New York. This cool. is my ticket. And then I just immediately started like interning, working for for, for people. Cause I really feel like what we do is, is very apprenticeship based, mm-hmm. apprentice based, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of those kind of crafts that you learn by doing versus being in a classroom. So, um, and we were in, you know, it was New York. It was before the, the doc craze, you know, when docs made no money, they, it was hard to get financed, all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. And I remember being in the office and like trying to plot my way of how I was going to make something and, Jeff, with you know, I was like, oh my god, who is this guy who went to the favelas and mm-hmm. and was shooting? Yeah, you have no idea. And he would come in all like rugged, and I was like, oh my god, like that's what doc filmmakers are like. And I and he was he was you know we're not that far in age. I am younger, but 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 I was like he's so he's so young and he's doing all this stuff and like all these people believe in him and his in his vision and and the film was beautiful. It was it's great. It's a great movie. And you really were an inspiration to me of like how to be. And, and so it's, I just have to throw that in there. But after, yeah, after those days, I, I think I was too scared to direct. And I was like, I can produce. And I have, I have, have a lot of but Like I, I, you can throw me anywhere and I'll figure out what to do. And I heard about this French team and they needed an American to take them around. And, and so I, I, I got the interview and I got my first producer credit. And then I was like, okay, we got to put this, we got to get this movie seen in the United States of America. And so Tribeca was this brand new festival that needed content for their first year. Yeah. And I was like, let's submit to Tribeca. And I walked to the office and I was like, I have this movie. I like remember like handing in the actual copy, physical copy um, of it <laughs> and we got in. And then MTV bought us and we at the first year of Tribeca. I also got, I think, $10,000 or $20,000 from Reebok for the best party I've ever been to after. (laughs) I'm very proud of that fact. And I was 25 years old and I was like walking around New York, like I owned the city. And I remember our, our screening at Tribeca was the most, there was a line around the block and the screening was at Pace where I like had quit school. And then I like got to go back to my college as a producer and that was how I started in working in docs. But I started immediately, kind of entering into this space, doing a lot more popular culture mm-hmm. type content. Mm-hmm. And and then it took me, it took me, it took me five years to actually then turn into to turn into a director. Yeah. What and was that moment? What was that turning point? I um I I started self financing a project on this guy named Roger Corman, mm-hmm. um who I also cold called and was like, I'm a filmmaker and I want to make a movie about you. And he answered the phone, and I literally got to him that way. <laughs> and he was like, "Okay," and I was like, "Can I come and meet you?" Um, and he's a B movie god, and he has made you know almost over 500 movies, mm-hmm. and discovered you know and started the careers of Robert De Niro, Jack Nicholson, Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, Peter Fonda. I mean, it just Dennis Hopper. I mean, it just goes on and on and yeah. on. And and so I I remember that when I started that. I started shooting with him and I, knew, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just putting one foot in front of the other. And he called me and he was like, so Alex, we, and he's very like dry and he's like, I think we have a problem here because Ron Howard actually wants to make this film. <laughs> and I, you know, it's been lovely knowing you, but you know, kind of one of those conversations. Yeah. And I remember... I was in shock. I I hung up the phone because I had just sold it. I just <gasps> got in financing. Oh my gosh. I just got in financing. And I was like, okay, now we're on a roll. And I remember calling the sale, the, the guy who put it together, the money. And I was like, oh shit, what am I going to do? He's going to, I just sold this dream to these guys who are going to give me a lot of money to make it. And he's, I don't care what you have to do, but you have to get the movie back. Mm-hmm. And I called Roger back and I was like, I just started crying. No, oh. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know what to do, but I'm really, and I was like totally honest with him and he's okay, please stop. You're making me uncomfortable. Please stop crying. (laughs) But what I need you to do is you need to meet this woman named Polly Platt, because if you're going to do a movie about me, you have to, you need some help. Mm -hmm. And Polly Platt was Peter Bogdanovich's former wife, uh, ex-wife, and um, is a legend in her own right. And, and knows everybody in the old Hollywood you know, scene. And I called her and she, she was amazing. And she got me through the entire project. She got me Jack Nicholson, wow. who's never done an interview ever on camera, wow. like ever, who cried when I interviewed him. Oh my God. And, and that was the beginning of me being a director. And that was a very long time ago. And that was the last, I was at Sundance 13 years ago with that film. Wow. And we were, yeah, we were at camp so together. We, we hung out at camp. Yeah, yeah, we had we had, the had films the
4: same year. Yeah. I wonder which what year was that? Though?
1: That was when you had. It was about Bollywood. Mm-hmm. That was the movie. Yeah. That's so see, we, we were like, we we're yeah, like. I
4: remember <laughs> hanging and hearing all these stories. Then. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So anyway, that's my start.
0: Thank you. We're actually going to dive into how we build relationships, or how you all build relationships with your subjects in in a in a beat. But thank you for sharing, and thank you for also like talking about crying with publicly because I am a I am a crier. And Sometimes you just got to be real. Yeah. You have to be vulnerable yes. for people to trust you. Absolutely. And normalize that. Sometimes we have emotions. We're in these incredibly high stakes environments. We care about these stories desperately and we want to tell them. And everything, like movies should just not exist. I think they don't want to be made and we're the core person who's driving it or there has to be one person. And of course we're going to have emotions. Of course we're going to have those reactions. So awesome. How about you, Tony?
3: Yeah. So just thinking about this, it's there's it's I get asked this question, there's there's the brief version and the long version, and it's and so labyrinthian for me. You know, I also teach and I I tell young people that it's okay to not know where you're going, Mm -hmm. right? That sometimes the journey, right, and sort of just following your gut and not having a master plan is is fruitful, right? And and maybe builds wisdom. And I think that's how I became a filmmaker. I never really had the vision. I knew I wanted, wanted to do it, but I did, certainly didn't know how and didn't have any connections. And my mother o- always told me, don't, don't work in the film business, it's full of criminals. <laughs> maybe she was wrong. She's not wrong. She's, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. So as, as a young kid, I fell in love with films of Fellini, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of led me as an undergrad to working in theater and wanting to write plays. And and I realized that what I was trying to do in the theater was trying to make movies in the theater, you know? And when I left college, I began working in downtown theater, Mm. specifically with a company called Mabu Mines, if anyone knows Mabu Mines. It was was a a really scrappy, sort of edgy, independent experimental theater company that came up in the 70s and 80s. Phil Glass, some of his earliest scores were for theater. And his Robert wife.
1: Wilson?
3: Yep. Okay. Well, they were sort of tangential to Robert Wilson. But, but with these folks, it was for me, it was like running away and joining the circus. And, and really, it's because I had skills as a carpenter. I could swing a hammer. So I wow. was being paid, right? And then they realized that I had this appetite to make films and you know, sort of enlisted me to start making these little 16-millimeter films that would play in these experimental productions, like a show at La Mama, The Mother. At La Mama. And so anyway, that was sort of my first taste of, of, of having, ha, having authorship, right, in this medium. And then I hate to say, I'm so, sorry to, to break, with the trend, I went to film school. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. Have I apologize. you seen the title uh, of the podcast? Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, I don't know that I'm going to recommend it. The one, the one thing you get out of film school that I'll say, you get debt certainly. And if you can figure out which how not highly to get there. Recommend. So I, I did, I did teach at this program at, at CUNY, uh-huh. the Fierstein program, that, which I is dropped out of just, that program. just, just, a, just, did you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it is the cheapest MFA in film in the country. Right. Yeah. And it's also the most diverse. Yes. Right. And so I'm going to lose my, my train of thought. I apologize. Oh, so you, I went you to, did film to film school and, school. you know, I studied fiction filmmaking. I was a writer director. I'd done all this sort of work in theater and playwriting. So I figured, you know, screenwriting is my jam and my thesis film from film school played Sundance right and so Congrats. yeah Welcome and back. yeah it was a lot of years ago and in fact that's when my wife and I conceived our our daughter baby. who's all grown up now and and then that so that short film which was called Small Taste of Heaven we, which which was about a, a, a Romanian butcher in Queens in Ridgewood Queens became the seed of a feature mm. that we made and I co-wrote it with my wife who's a successful playwright named Lynn Nottage. And we attracted Merchant Ivory, who came on to produce it, if anyone remembers Merchant Ivory. You mentioned Bollywood, right? Mm -hmm. So we had this script that was set in each of the five boroughs about immigrants in New York City in one 24-hour period, right? And that played Sundance subsequently. And it had John Ortiz, Rosario Dawson, Valerio Galeno, Shashi Kapoor, if you know your Bollywood, yeah? So that was a trip didn't sell right away. You know, that was sort of the beginning of learning the realities of the marketplace, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually it did get distribution with IFC. But what happened to me in the interim was I began working in documentary, Mm -hmm. right? Because I needed to make a living. And it's ironic to say that I went to documentary to make a living. Um, But the fact of the matter is I knew how to shoot, right? And I loved shooting. So what had been my hammer, right? When I left school, I could I could swing a hammer, and so I didn't have to PA. I could work in the art department and Mm -hmm. get paid a little better, right? So similarly, because I knew how to shoot, I began working for MTV News. Did some early days of reality television. Uh I'm not afraid to say, you know, there were chops together. Yes, what's that? It's
2: a good way to get your chops together, man. Yeah,
1: you learn how to do things on a schedule and and quickly, and not take five years.
3: Yeah, (laughs) I think it's true. It's true. I I think I spent a lot of years sort of regretting this sort of labyrinthian journey that I'd taken. I feel, you know, I had friends who knew what they wanted and, and, and went after it and achieved and, you know, went to Hollywood right away and then started writing and directing on TV shows. And, you know, but, but I feel like, I feel like the, the journey, this sort of random journey, which really at the end of the day, wasn't random. Right. But I, but I think it, it did, you know, teach me incredible lessons. I didn't, I didn't even get to like how I started making docs, but maybe, maybe that's enough for as now. A, we can, as
0: a necessity, as yeah. a way to Well, yeah, I goals. began
3: shooting. Yeah, and then, then eventually hired to shoot and direct. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I did 10, 15 years of National Geographic.
0: Wow.
3: You know, and, and, and you know, didn't have narrative autonomy all the time because this is commercially formatted hours, often with a narrator, right? But the travel was extraordinary. Yeah. And the lessons that I learned, you know, and the places I went, you know. So, again, you know, this sort of labyrinthian journey. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm back doing scripted as well as, as unscripted. And, you know, still working with my wife and my oh, partner. So, that? Yeah.
2: So, I was a musician for most of my li- uh, early life. And my mother always said to me, you can play drums all you like, but how the hell are you going to pay your rent? And I didn't know the answer to that. And I was like, oh, well, there's a film industry out there that's going to be better than some desk job anyway, I got myself to New York and I just started PAing. and I was, I'll admit, an excellent PA. Uh-huh. I just knew if you're so fucking good that it's awkward, then eventually you're not gonna be a PA anymore. And one of the first places I got a break was, so Spike Lee has, of course, 40, 40 acres and a mule, but he also was working with this company called Drop Squad Pictures, which was on Houston and Broadway. I think 594 Broadway was the address. And I was, I was office PAing for them. I was the only white person in the office, which they let me know about and which I loved. Mm-hmm. And I was just like taking up the garbage, like office PA. I, was, I think my first credit is on Spike's Kings of Comedy. I think mm-hmm. the office PA is my first credit as Mike Warren, I believe. Anyway, but at night, they had an Avid and I, mm-hmm. I had learned Avid. I had a, I spent a very short period of time in corporate America, Reebok, coincidentally, and they sent me to Avid school, and I dropped out, moved, left them, and went to New York City, broke. Right. Anyway, so they had an Avid, and I was trying to make you know I, I knew I was a good editor. I kind I kind of knew I was going to be a good editor because drumming and editing and music, it's all the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so at night they I would go back into their offices and, and edit footage, and I think it might have been Hype Williams, the music, the very big '90s hip hop director. There was. Ja Rule's video, holla Hala. Hala.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Anyway, there was like three quarter inch tapes of that in the office. I like, re, I was like, hey guys, do you mind if I edit here tonight? And I like redigitized the, the source footage for that, that video and I like cut it into a video and then started shopping it around New York City as an editor. Anyway, got the attention of a, a company called Radical Media. They brought me in to do this project that was, I thought was terrible. It was like a, it was actually pre-Hamilton Broadway hip hop I don't even freaking remember what it was. It never came out, thank God. But the owner of the company was like, this is a masterful edit. And I was like, never, I was like, okay, great. Anyway, so he put me on as lead editor on a doc series for ESPN called The Life. Mm-hmm. It was 32 episodes. It was like a, it was like, it was a magazine y sort of mm-hmm. show. This is about 2000. 32 episodes, which is completely unheard of. It was an exhausting year of my life. we got nominated for best long form editing after that. And my editing career just went straight on from that. And so, I spent a handful of years being a very bossy editor, telling directors, you screw this whole thing up. You don't even have this other part. Go back out there. You have to do it. And they finally said, well, if you know everything, then why don't you go shoot it yourself? And I said, well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah. And my first directorial film actually is Jay-Z's Fade to Black, the concert film, which is 20 years old this year. Legendary. It or not. Uh-huh. Thank you. Legendary, thank you.
1: Legendary film.
2: So, the deal with that is Jay-Z was retiring back then, but oh. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, before the film even comes out, he's back out of retirement. But he knew he was retiring. He shot this concert at MSG and that he was shopping it as a... They already cut it and they're shopping it as a film. It was not going anywhere. And we had a mutual friend named Rich Kleiman who was actually... Kevin Durant's business partner right yes, now. Yes,
1: and I'm making stuff with him. Are you
2: serious? Anyway, so he was friends with Jay back in the day, yes. and he said you should. I had been, I was known as a doctor editor at that point. This thing's off the rails. Get Mike and Michael Warren in here. We'll fix it. Uh-huh. And he told Jay that in Radical Media, and they, and uh, basically, I took all the footage, I deleted the Avid project, and started from the beginning to recut the film, the recut the live footage because I like it was cut terribly, like a bad music video frankly and while i was looking at that that source material i found all this doc like stuff of jay recording the black album which you know is the best album of jay i think and the owner of radical media said you know i'll I'll pay you for two weeks and you can see if you can prove that this is a movie so after two weeks i'd only seen the footage so i said john give me please can i just do two more weeks and if this actually sells you got to pay me for those two weeks this is how or... Oh, how dumb I was about what I could have asked for in that moment anyway. But so I cut the first 15 minutes of the film. This is, I don't usually tell this story, but I wrote voiceover for Jay and recorded it myself. Huh? <laughs> and, and so it's the, here comes the day of, I'm going to show the first 15 minutes of Fade to Black. Jay's in the, Jay's coming in the office. And really quick story. There's a beautiful woman in a hoodie with him. And I said, hey, my name's Michael. And she says, hey. Doesn't say her name. I'm like, that's where she doesn't say her name. And we sit down in this conference room to show the first 15 minutes of the film. And Jay puts his hand on the back on her back. And I'm like, you fucking idiot. That is Beyonce. Oh. Just like without makeup on. I mean, she's gorgeous. But it's not… You think of Beyonce to be like 75 feet tall yeah. and made out of diamonds. Anyway… And the lights go down and, uh, and it hit me. I'm like, you ha- you're about to show Jay-Z a film where your voice is pretending to be Jay-Z. I'm like, your career's over. This is done. And it starts in like, maybe like a minute or two in, I hear in pitch black, I hear him go,
1: <laughs> and then I was
2: like, oh, he likes it. And so anyway, mm-hmm. we took that fifth, first 15 minutes. It's still the first 15 minutes of that film. And I'm assuming we put Jay's voice on it. I don't know, but they brought it to Hollywood <laughs> and it got offers. And so then I, turned that into a feature-length film. I fought for a director on it because I was really writing it, rewriting it, and turning it into a film. I split director credit with the guy who shot that concert. But then I had a successful film that I was a director of and I'd never been on set before. Hmm. I mean, other than as a PA, as a director.
0: The best PA. Yeah.
2: Anyway, so that just launched my career. And it's just, I've been able to open a lot of different lanes since then. I get to do a lot of sports stuff, a lot of concert films, Mm -hmm. a lot of music stuff, obviously. And yeah, I didn't go to film school. I tell people don't go to film school because the point of the story is no one cares. No one's ever asked me where I went to college. You know what Sundance asked where I went to college. In my I was like, why do you care where I went to college? No <laughs> one has ever asked me that. You must Amherst, by the way. Because it doesn't matter where you went to college and it doesn't matter what your degree is. All they want to know is what have you done? Yeah. Right. And so I think the secret of it all is you gotta go when you're young, at least, you gotta go above and beyond the whole time. And you have to be so good that it's awkward and they can't mm-hmm. say no, that old Steve Martin. Phrase be so good they can't say no. And I gotta say, even 20 years in, it's still what do you got, Mike mm-hmm. Warren? Yes, right? Like it never stops. And so of course, you get maybe bigger opportunities. They know, okay, this guy's been doing this for 20 years. A lot of it, the stuff is really good. There's a little bit more confidence there, but every project I do, I'm proving myself. And yeah. I've been doing it at a really high level for multiple decades. So I tell people, unless you're ready to really work your ass off for the rest of your life. Don't even bother getting into here. Yeah. But I will also say that it is a great career. I mean, I've yeah. seen the world so many times. I've met so many yeah. incredible people. I've profiled uh, all these amazing people. I just get to travel the world and absorb humanity all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I have no regrets, you know? And so...
0: I want to use that as a pivot moment yeah, <laughs> because I know, Alex, we're losing you in one minute, oh. specifically. Alex is a big
2: press day today. Alex has a... Too bad. This Great is. We should see it. her outfit. I yeah. know. You I should know. take I a know. picture and know. post yeah. She yeah. Looks She's ready for prime
3: exactly. time. Yeah.
0: I, I you have a number of projects as part of your production company, and I'd love to hear briefly before we have to let you go about
1: the process of pitching and keeping that momentum going. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that all of us are, are are vets, and we all have been in the trenches where, you know, making a doc is, is, is really hard work because you're living and breathing it. You're, you're on call, honestly. And, and it, and it wreaks havoc to your personal life, you know, a lot of the times. (laughs) And, and so you, you don't, you know, there's, there's no sleep till Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, we are in an era coming out of the the doc explosion of i think a lot of directors who have, who have been doing this for a while i think we're starting to realize like we should have more not only like creative autonomy but more economic upside to our projects and i think that this is a growing thing with a lot of us right now i'm also on the board of the the directors guild and the co-chair of the direct the co-chair of the documentary committee and there is a palpitating like thing happening where we have to take our careers a lot more serious mm-hmm. about like with residuals and, and, and ownership and, and, you know, what, so that we can be, so that we financially can have a sustainability so that we can continue to do other things and not be put in like weird situations mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and make it a better world for the kids that are coming up. So all of those things have been going on with me for the past few years. And I, I just. You know I'm very blessed that i've I've been lucky to work with with great production companies as a gun for hire, but I just I came to the end of my road doing that. and that was the reason that I started House of Nonfiction, which is my production company, and we're going into our third year. And even in that, it's been a journey because now i'm I've gone independent. I was with Sony you know for a couple of years, and now I'm going independent and it's um it's 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 a whole nother part of the business Learn, learning the business on top of the craft is exciting but it's really really challenging mm-hmm. and i think everyone in this room can all you know these are all guys that do that too you know we're all in the on the business side of it as well and and so you know you never stop you never stop developing trying to search for IP that you can turn into something, taking meetings with people, you know, people come to me, people like Rich Kleinman, who has, you know, this great idea for a doc, but doesn't know how to necessarily put it together. Mm-hmm. And so that's a part of my business, but you know, it's just always coming up with, with ideas because not everything sells. Right. And I think that like in the past couple of years of me having a company, I've had to, usually I get put on and everything sells. Like I've been very spoiled in that way that like Mm -hmm. by the time I get onto the project, it's kind of like people know about it. It's high profile. It's going to get made. And now having a company, it's yeah, no, that's not reality on any level whatsoever. It's one out of 15, one out of 15 ideas, you know, and maybe one out of six that we've put money into, tears, energy, blood, sweat, and tears into developing a concept and then you take it to market and it doesn't sell. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it, it's it can be painful. Yeah. I've learned to get the grieving process is a lot shorter for me now because I'm like, don't take it personal. You know, it is what it is, and we're coming out of a very tough year. 2023 was it was really really tough to to sell, and I think that you know what I learned from the guys that I worked at Sony with Eli and Aaron, Aaron Sedman and Eli Holtzman is that even if it doesn't sell when you put it out to market, hold on to it if you can mm-hmm. because things are so cyclical in this business. And some, sometimes there's already stuff that I pitched in 2022 that didn't make it that already I'm talking about, you know, get finding a home oh, wow. now because now all of a sudden it's relevant, you yeah. know?
3: The world yeah. changes. The so world
1: quick. changes. And in the words of Jack Nicholson in Hollywood, if something is successful, they will order 10,000 of them. And so sometimes you have a project like that where, you know, you have you've some film has a lot of success and you have something kind of adjacent and then all of a sudden everybody wants to buy it you know or you can find financing so it's it's challenging but it's incredibly rewarding when you get something over the finish line and i think that it just makes me that's a rookie that's <laughs> i'm just joking it's it's i just have so much respect for 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 these my other compadres here because to get anything done mm-hmm. is a herculean like it's Herculean, yeah. And even to
2: fail, even to fail, even her- to, fail <laughs> to fail is Herculean. To
1: fail is Herculean because what what this what what we do is is you know it's thankless yeah. a lot of the time, and we're not making like Hollywood money. You yeah. know? So sorry to yeah. interrupt, mm-hmm. but I know you have to go yes. okay. right now. Yes.
0: To be celebrated okay. elsewhere, and I know we have you guys for ten more minutes if that's possible. To give her a hug. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, can because I say everybody hit the, gives can a I hug? Hit the head? Yes. Yes. Where, where please. Hey. Okay. Great. Right thank this. you well we're still recording great <laughs> this is the the mix the chaos of Sundance I was gonna ask about format and style and sort of how you found your narrative I don't know if we'll have time for that so I'm gonna fast forward and go to what advice do you have for emerging filmmakers people who are just getting their start out and then we can always pick this up when the films are coming out into yeah. the world
2: yeah I am this is just like a premiere for us.
4: We're actually, I don't even know.
0: What yeah. So, so Plus yes.
4: For for young doc filmmakers. Yeah,
0: prep- Emerging filmmakers who are, yeah. uh, yeah. People who are just getting their start out. They may be picking up their camera for the first time. Um, what advice do you have for those folks?
4: Well, the, the usual stuff is the resilience and the wherewithal, and and all of that is so true, but also a cliche, and everyone hears it so yeah, much that it so gets a, it's like, so true that you have to say it. You have to start any you advice. You can tell the yeah. PAs who aren't going to be a PA next yeah. year. You can see them. You're right. like that
2: person's not going to be a PA next year. Right.
4: Sorry. Yeah. Head down, even when it hurts, especially when it hurts. Head back down. But you know, the, for me, one of the things that was really helpful was avoiding getting too involved in the industry chatter like i'm a journalist first and foremost i consider myself you know an investigator and so i'll nerd out and learn everything there is to know about the subject that i'm supposed to be making the definitive documentary on but i do not want to know all that stuff about the film industry Mm -hmm. it's changing so fast it's super intimidating and it's a it's a land of scarcity so it feels very competitive so I sort of avoid the hacks and you know, I avoid the advice. The podcasts are great when you, when you want to feel like you're a part of a community. That's crucial. Mm-hmm. But I was intentionally like avoiding LA and avoiding general meetings. You know, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to be signed at uh, WME when I was 25. And all they wanted me to do was the rounds. And I didn't want to do the rounds. I wanted to stay in New York. I didn't want to fill my head with other people's ways of doing mm-hmm. things. And I was worried. I was insecure that I was too early in my career. I didn't know exactly my way of doing it yet. Mm -hmm. And I needed that space and that time. And that I think paid off. I mean, ultimately, once I got confident in the way I approach all these things, I no longer, I had blinders on. I no longer was knocked uh, astray by other people's advice. And people trusted me more because I was later in my career. The, The only other thing I would add is that, you know, The other interest, the other thing you did growing up that not as many people did, whatever that hobby was, or whether whether there's something that your family invested in that was esoteric and you guys all took for granted, but no one else knows about it. Mm -hmm. Find the overlap between that and your craft. And in many ways, Skywalker is the film I'm here with this year is that, right? It was 20 years after I did this weird activity as a teenager that I found a story that resonated and it was the overlap of that that bizarre hobby and my craft. And I I, I really do think that's what sets you apart.
0: advice. Well, thank you, Jeff. We'll excuse okay. you right. from the round table and we'll finish out with you guys. Okay. What what about you guys? Your your parting words of advice.
3: Advice for young filmmakers. I'm gonna open it up and not distinguish between fiction and nonfiction, right? And as somebody who works often in the nonfiction space, I, I don't, and when I teach, I don't, I don't like this bifurcation,
1: mm-hmm.
3: right? I mean, I think there's good films and bad films. I think those are the two types of films. Yeah. And, and for me, what's really important is when a film is greater than the sum of its parts, right? And sometimes that's working through metaphor. Sometimes, you know, if, 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 you're, if your subject is torn from the headlines, right? How do you do more than just Regurgitate and report on the thing. How do you how do you make it cinema? Yeah. Really, right? And I, I like this term nonfiction, non You know, documentary nonfiction is the term I like. So, and the other thing I'd say is avoid thinking about what the market wants. Yes. Right. My wife and I have this expression, which is I I don't think about what the audience wants. I think about what the audience doesn't yet know that they need. Right. And I think that that's a really good piece of advice for young filmmakers because there's so much noise, there's so much content. You're thinking, okay, well, I could do something on, on, a, on a cult. And, yeah. and it seems like people really want that stuff, you know? Um, it's, it's, it's the film that comes out of you know, the ether, right? Yeah. That no one has thought of. That, you know, if you really want to impact the culture, there's all sorts of reasons. You know, yeah. to to aspire to work in this industry, right. right. And you know, I'm not going to judge judge those. but if 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 you aspire to do something original and mm-hmm. honest, you know, follow follow your heart, follow your muse. that That would be my my biggest piece of advice, I think.
0: that's great. I, I really hope that specifically your two projects, the audiences of each watch the other projects because, one there is this timely nature of these subcultures and trying to process and understand it and 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 I do think that bala is a reflection of this cult, of this culture and this specific thing that has brought us through as a counterculture and wargame is this incredibly timely of the moment and so f- important yeah and i think will help everyone sort of understand where we're at and the crisis that we're in right now.
3: Do you know this term, intentional blindness? No. It's a term that I, I, I dig. It's like The other day, I was trying to find the toothpaste and I couldn't for the life of me find it. And I'm like, what? where the hell's the toothpaste? My son tends to take things and wander the house and just uh-huh. leave them in random places. So I'm like, he must've taken the toothpaste. Then later I went back, it was right there. I just didn't see it, mm. right? So intentional blindness is sometimes when something is right in front of you and you can't see it. Yeah. And that's our relationship to January 6th. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. as, as, a, as a culture, we haven't even yet agreed on what to call it. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. it's so politicized. Yeah. Right? And so anyway, with, with War Game the hope is that it's not just a film for this moment mm-hmm. that that it also becomes a metaphor yeah you know a way of looking at something that that that's been in front of us all along
0: mm-hmm. but
3: but but seeing it with fresh eyes
0: yeah 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 so, so
3: cool.
2: uh, i'm going to get very practical with my advice for young filmmakers well, cuz i think that's how i did it and that's all i kind of knew i personally think at the beginning you should decide if you want to be in the camera department or or post basically production or post mm. because you're not going to start a, it's really not likely you're going to start as a director or as a screenwriter at least that's not my experience. So figure out what side of it either the filming of it or the editing of it you want to be on and then hustle as hard as possible in that direction and really just don't 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 take no for an answer just keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing. I would also say that I know, we talk, I know you guys talk about gear and stuff on this, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think about gear at all. I, I don't care. I, a great DP can take a, a DV camera from like 2000 and put up a great image with it, yeah. right? I don't, I don't think thinking about the technical side of filmmaking, I, I don't think about it at all. That's yeah. what my DP's for. That's what everyone else is for. For me, the only thing that matters is story and learning how to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. The tools are just tools. And so… You can make the flashiest, highest tech thing ever, and it sucks because you're not actually telling a good story and you're not getting people's attention. Those things, those flashy things are great, but they, there are adornments on something that has to have a foundation, which right. is a reflection on humanity, which is what a good story does. Yeah. So think about story, pick a side of the industry you want to be on, and then just be so good that they can't say
3: no. Yeah, I, I, w- I want to add on to that because I think that's really great advice. It's also this idea of, of being able to swing a hammer, right? Have a exactly. skill that people will pay you for. Yeah. Because then that becomes a front row seat. You know, it, it gets you in the kitchen, so to speak, where, yeah. where 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 the meals being cooked. Yes. You know, to speak in metaphor. And and that's really important because you'll learn so much being in the kitchen. Yeah. Right? So whether it's the edit room and you learn to be an AE and people are going to pay you, and at first you're going to have to work through the night, do the graveyard shift, do the stuff no one wants to do, but yeah. you know, demonstrating your 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 talent and your commitment as you as you pointed out, you know, people will notice that, you yeah, know, and, 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 you know, camera department too. learn to shoot, yeah. you know, learn to, to coil cable, learn to grip. I
0: just learned how to yeah. coil a cable. Populate. I still can't
3: because I came up on post.
0: <laughs> yes. yes. You, know, so you organize the files
3: perfectly. I'm <laughs>
1: exactly. sure.
3: It's a foundational skill. Cause everyone's yeah, busy a, and if they can
2: shove responsibility off, you know, like you want someone who can just do the work, you know, when you the higher I get, the more I'm like, how much can you do for me? Uh-huh. And so, if you want to be that person who can do a lot for someone yeah. in a yeah. position of power,
0: yeah, can't, so they can't say no. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I love just the kismet and the crossover yeah, it was in this a great conversation. Panel. I haven't seen
2: her in a long time. It was great.
0: Yeah. Well, I I know our listeners will love it too. And yeah, I please come back on the No Film School podcast, and cool. I'll close us out offside of the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you.
2: Bye.
3: Bye.
1: Bye.
0: Thank you so much to this amazing group of people for coming out and engaging and also just reconnecting. One of my biggest takeaways from this conversation was how much of a long game it is and how it's the people around you that you help and that you influence that will come to be the people who are sitting across from you at the table, at the round table, by the fire in this case, as we like to do our fireside chats with our round tables here at Sundance. And I was just so excited to see that, you know, 20 years later and then some for all of these folks that they are here at Sundance, most of them returning and here to sort of celebrate this format The other biggest takeaway that I have is that these conversations need to be longer than 40 minutes. Next time I'll be scheduling for an hour and a half at least. I felt like we were, if anything, cutting short the conversation. So lesson learned for me. Thank you to our listener for tuning in. You can get more No Film School, including our film school our No Film School Sundance coverage at nofilmschool.com, on social media at No Film School and across anywhere where you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.